Section 23 of Handbook of Home Rule. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. Handbook of Home Rule being Articles on the Irish Question. The Past and Future of the Irish Question by James Bryce, M.P. Part 3 The second difficulty is that of maintaining social order in Ireland. What that difficulty is and whence it arises everyone knows. It is chronic, but every second or third winter when there has been a wet season or the price of livestock declines it becomes specially acute the tenants refuse to pay rents which they declare to be impossible the landlords or the harsher among them try to enforce rents by evictions evictions are resisted by outrages and boycotting Popular sentiment supports those who commit outrages because it considers the tenantry to be engaged in a species of war, a righteous war, against the landlord. Evidence can seldom be obtained, and juries acquit in the teeth of evidence. Thus, the enforcement of the law strains all the resources of authority while a habit of lawlessness and discontent is transmitted from generation to generation. Of the remedies proposed for this chronic evil, the most obvious is the strengthening of the criminal law. We have been trying this for more than 100 years, since white boyism appeared and trying it in vain. Since the Union, coercion acts of more or less severity have been almost always in force in Ireland, passed for two or three years, then dropped for a year or two, then renewed in a form slightly varying, but always with the same result of driving the disease in for a time, but not curing it. Mr. Gladstone proposed to buy out the landlords and then leave an Irish Parliament to restore social order, with that authority which it would derive from having the will of the people behind it, because he held that when the people felt the law to be of their own making and not imposed from without, their sentiment would be enlisted on its side and the necessity for a firm government recognized. This plan has, however, been rejected, so the choice was left of a fresh coercion act or of some scheme, necessarily a costly scheme, for getting rid of the source of trouble by transferring the land of Ireland to the peasantry. The present government, while guided by Sir M. Hicks Beach, who had some knowledge of Ireland, did its best to persuade the landlords to accept reduced rents 
while the nationalist leaders on their side sought to restrain the people from outrages but the armistice did not last the ministry yielded to the foolish counsels of its more violent supporters and entrusted irish affairs to the hands of a chief secretary without previous knowledge of the island an unusually severe coercion act has been brought in and passed by the aid of the dissentient liberals and we now see the act administered with a mixture of virulence and incompetence to which even the dreary annals of irish misgovernment present few parallels the feeling of the english people is rising against the policy carried out in their name so far from being solved the problem of social order becomes every day more acute there remains the question of a reform of local government for many years past every english ministry has undertaken to frame a measure creating a new system of popular rural self-government in england it is the first large task of domestic legislation which we ask from parliament when such a scheme is proposed can ireland be left out of it should she be left out the argument that she is being treated unequally and unfairly as compared with england would gain immense force because the present local government of ireland is admittedly less popular less efficient altogether less defensible than even that of england which we are going to reform if therefore the theory that the imperial parliament is both anxious and able to do its duty by ireland is to be maintained ireland too must have her scheme of a local government and a scheme of local government is a large project the discussion of which must pass into a discussion of the government of the island as a whole since then we may conclude that whatever ministry is in power will be bound to take up the state of ireland since parliament and the nation will be occupied with the subject during the coming session fully as much as they have been during those that have recently passed the next inquiry is what will the tendency of opinion and legislation be will the reasons and forces described above bring us the home rule and if so when how and why there are grounds for answering these questions in the negative a majority of the house of commons including the present ministry and such influential liberals as mr bright lord hartington mr chamberlain stand pledged to resist it and it seems such is the passion which controversy engenders more disposed to resist it than they were in eighteen eighty five but this ground is less strong than it may appear we have had too many changes of opinion and of action too upon irish affairs 
not to be prepared for further changes. A ministry in power learns much which an opposition fails to learn. Home rule is an elastic expression, and some of those who were loudest in denouncing Mr. Gladstone's bill will find it easy to explain, should they bring in a bill of their own for giving self-government to Ireland, that their measure is a different thing and free from the objections brought against his. Nor, if such a conversion should come, need it be deemed a dishonest one, for events are potent teachers, and governments now seek rather to follow than to form opinion. Although a decent interval must be allowed, no one will be astonished if the Tory leaders should move ere long in the direction indicated. Toryism itself, as has been remarked already, contains nothing opposed to the idea. Far greater obstacles exist in the aversion which, as already observed, so many Englishmen of both parties have entertained for any scheme which should seem to leave the Protestant minority at the mercy of the peasant and Roman Catholic majority, and to carry us some way toward the ultimate separation of the islands. These alarms are genuine and deep-seated. One who, like the present writer, thinks them, if not baseless yet immensely overstrained, is, of course, convinced that they may be allayed, but time must first pass, and the plan that is to allay them may have to be framed on somewhat different lines from those of Mr. Gladstone's measure. It is even possible that a conflict more sharp and painful than any of recent years may intervene before a settlement is reached. Nevertheless, great as are the obstacles in the way, bitter as are the reproaches with which Mr. Gladstone is pursued by the richer classes in England, there is good reason to believe that the current is setting towards his policy. In proceeding to state the grounds for this view, I must frankly own that I am no longer, as in most of the preceding pages, merely setting forth facts on which impartial men in England would agree. The forecast which I seek to give may be tinged by my own belief that the grant of self-government is the best, if not the only method now open to us of establishing peace between the islands, relieving the English Parliament of work it is ill-fitted to discharge, allowing Ireland opportunities to learn those lessons in politics which her people so much need. The future, even the near future, is more than usually dim. Yet, if we examine those three branches of the Irish question, which have been enumerated above, we shall see how naturally, in each of them, the concession of self-government seems to open, I will not say the most direct, but the least dangerous way, 
out of our troubles. The parliamentary difficulty arises from the fact that the representatives of Ireland have the feelings of foreigners sitting in a foreign assembly, whose honour and usefulness they do not desire. While these are their feelings, they cannot work properly in it, and it cannot work properly with them. The inconvenience may be endured, but the English will grow tired of it, and be disposed to rid themselves of it, if they see their way to do so without greater mischief. There are but two ways out of this difficulty. One is to get rid of the Irish members altogether. The other is to make them, by the concession of their just demands, contented and loyal members of a truly united Parliament. The experience of the Parliament of 1880, which was mainly occupied with Irish business and begun being a strongly liberal parliament with a bias toward the irish popular party showed how difficult it is for a house of commons which is ignorant of ireland to legislate wisely for it in the house of lords there is not a single nationalist indeed up till eighteen eighty six that exalted chamber contained only one peer lord Dalhousie, former member for Liverpool, who had ever said a word in favour of Home Rule. The more the England becomes sensible, that she must become sensible, of the deficiencies of the present machinery for appreciating the needs and giving effect to the wishes of Irishmen, the more disposed will she be to grant them some machinery of their own as regards social order i have shown that the choice which lies before the opponents of home rule is either to continue the policy of coercing the peasantry by severe special legislation or to remove the source of friction by buying out the landlords for the benefit of the tenants the present ministry have chosen the former alternative, but they dangle before the eyes of their supporters some prospect that they may ultimately revert to the latter. Now, the only way that has yet been pointed out of buying out the landlords without imposing tremendous liabilities of loss upon the British Treasury is the creation of a strong home rule government in dublin supposing however that some other plan could be discovered which would avoid the fatal objections to which an extension of the plan of the salisbury land purchase act of eighteen eighty five is open such a plan would remove one of the chief objections to an Irish Parliament, by leaving no estates for such a Parliament to confiscate. As for coercion, every day, I might say, every by-election shows us how it becomes more and more odious to the British democracy. They dislike severity. 
they dislike the inequality involved in passing harsher laws for Ireland than those that apply to England and Scotland. They find themselves forced to sympathize with acts of violence in Ireland which they would condemn in Great Britain, because these acts seem the only way of resisting harsh and unjust laws. When the recoil comes, it will be more violent than in former days. The wish to discover some other course will be very strong, and the obvious other course will be to leave it to an Irish authority to enforce social order in its own way, probably a more rough and ready way than that of British officials. The notion which has possessed most Englishmen that Irish self-government would be another form of anarchy is curiously erroneous. Conflicts there may be, but a vigorous rule will emerge. Lastly, as to local government, if a popular system is established in Ireland, one similar to that which it is proposed to establish in England, the control of its assemblies and officials will, over four-fifths of the island, fall into national hands. Their power will be enormously increased, for they will then command the machinery of administration and the power of taxing. What with taxing landlords, aiding recalcitrant tenants, stopping the wills of any central authority which may displease or oppose them, they will be in a so strong a position that the creation of an Irish Parliament may appear to be comparatively small further step, may even appear, as the wisest nationalists now think it would prove, in the light of a check upon the abuse of local powers. These eventualities will unquestionably, when English opinion has realized them, make such a parliament as the present pause before it commits rural local government to the Irish democracy. But it could not refuse to do something, and if it tried to restrain popular representative bodies by the veto of a bureaucracy in Dublin, there would arise occasions for quarrel and irritation more serious than now exist. Those who once began to repair an old and tottering building are led on, little by little, into changes they did not at starting contemplate. So it will be, if once the task is undertaken of reforming the confessedly bad and indefensible system of Irish administration, we may stop at some halfway house on the way, but home rule stands at the end of the road. Supposing, then, that the Nationalist Party, retaining its present strength and unity, perseveres in its present demands, there is every prospect that these demands will be granted. But will it persevere? There are among the English dissentients 
those who prophesy that it will break up, as such parties have broken up before, will lose hope and wither away. Or the support of the Irish peasantry may be withdrawn, a result which some English politicians expect from a final settlement of land of question in the interest of the tenants. Any of these contingencies is possible, but at present most improbable. The moment when long-cherished aims begin to seem attainable is not that at which men are disposed to abandon them. There are, however, other reasons which suggest the likelihood of a change in English sentiment on the whole matter. The surprise with which the bill of last April was received has worn off. The alarm is wearing off too. Those who set their teeth at what seemed to them a surrender to the Parnellites and the Irish-American allies, having relieved their temper by an emphatic no, have begun to ponder things more calmly. The English people are listening to the arguments from Irish history that are now addressed to them. They will be moved by solid grounds of policy, which that history suggests, will understand that what they have deemed incessant hatred is the natural result of long misgovernment and will disappear with time and the removal of its causes. Many of best minds of both nations will be at work to discover some method of reconciling Irish self-government with imperial supremacy and union free from the objections brought against the bills of 1886. It is reasonable to expect that they may greatly improve upon these measures, which were prepared under pressure from a clamorous opposition. What Mr. Disraeli once called the historical conscience of the country will appreciate those great underlying principles to which Mr. Gladstone's policy appeals. It has been accused of being a policy of despair and may have commended itself to some who supported it as being simply a means of ridding England of responsibility. But to others it seemed, and more truly, a policy of faith, not indeed of thoughtless optimism, but of faith according to the definition which calls it the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith by which nations, as well as men, must live, means nothing less than a conviction that great principles, permanent truths of human nature, lie at the bottom of all sound politics and ought to be boldly and consistently applied, even when temporary difficulties surround their application. Such a principle is the belief in the power of freedom and self-government to cure the faults of a nation in the tendency of responsibility to teach wisdom 
and to make men see that justice and order are the surest sources of prosperity. Such a principle is the perception that national hatred do not live on of themselves, but will expire when oppression is seized, as a fire burns out without fuel. Such a principle is the recognition of the force of national sentiment and of the duty of allowing it all the satisfaction that is compatible with the maintenance of imperial unity. Such, again, is the appreciation of those natural economic laws which show that nations, when disturbing passions have ceased, follow their own permanent interests, and that an island which finds its chief market in England and draws its capital from England will prefer a connection with England to the poverty and insignificance of isolation. It is the honour of Mr. Gladstone to have built his policy of conciliation upon principles like these, as upon a rock, and already the good effects are seen in the new friendliness which has arisen between the English masses and the people of Ireland, and in the better temper with which, despite the acrimony of some prominent politicians, the relations of the two peoples are discussed. When one looks round the horizon, it is still far from clear, nor can we say from which quarter fair weather will arrive, but the air is fresher and the clouds are breaking overhead. Postscript what has happened since the above paragraphs were written ten months ago has confirmed more quickly and completely than the writer expected the forecast they contain. Home rule is no longer a word of terror, even to those English and Scotch voters who were opposed to it in July 1886. Most sensible men in the Tory and dissentient liberal camps have come to see that it is inevitable, and, while they continue to resist it for the sake of what is called consistency, are because they do not yet see in what form it is to be granted. They are disposed to regard its speedy arrival as the best method of retreat from an indefensible position. The repressive policy which the present ministry are attempting in Ireland, for in the face of their failures one cannot say that they are carrying out any policy, is rendering coercion acts more and more detested by the English people. The actualities of Ireland, the social condition of her peasantry, the unwisdom of the dominant caste, the incompetence of the bureaucracy which affects to rule her, are being, by the full accounts we now receive, brought home to mind of England and Scotland as they never were before, and produce their appropriate effect upon the heart and conscience of the people. The recognition by the Liberal Party of the rights of Ireland, 
the visits of English Liberals to Ireland, the work done by Irishmen in English constituencies, are creating a feeling of unity and reciprocal interest between the masses of the people on both sides of the channel without example in the 700 years that have passed since Strongbow's landing. This was the thing most needed to make home rule safe and full of promise, because it affords a guarantee that in such political contests as may arise in the future, the division will not be as heretofore between the Irish people on the one side and the power of Britain on the other, but between two parties, each of which will have adherents in both islands. We may now at last hope that national hatreds will vanish, that England will unlearn her arrogance and Ireland her suspicion, that the basis is being laid for a harmonious cooperation of both nations in promoting the welfare and greatness of a common empire. Many of the Irish patriots of 1798 and 1848 desired separation because they thought that Ireland, attached to England, could never be more than the obscure satellite of a greater state. When Ireland has been heartily welcomed by the democracy of Great Britain as an equal partner, the ground for any such desire will have disappeared and union will rest on a foundation firmer than has ever before existed. Ireland will feel when those rights of self-government have been secured, for which she has pleaded so long, that she owes them not only to her own tenacity and courage, but to the magnanimity, the justice, the freely given sympathy of the English and Scottish people. October 1887 End of section 23 Recording by Mike Botez